0: It's time. Time for what, you might ask? It's time to optimize your health and upgrade your life. Cutting-edge research, biohacks, ancestral wisdom, wellness, intuition, and more. This is the Synthesis of Wellness. Your host and biohacker Chloe Porter has a background in engineering, innovation and research. Her analytical background coupled with her journey in overcoming a brain tumor and defeating several chronic illnesses enables her to approach health and wellness in an innovative way. And now more than ever, she is ready to share her biohacking secrets and expose cutting edge research. We are so glad you're here. Welcome to the Synthesis of Wellness podcast.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Synthesis of Wellness podcast. Danielle Hamilton is a nutritional therapy practitioner and a blood sugar specialist. She has an amazing backstory and journey in overcoming PCOS and discovering that blood sugar was at the root of her hormonal imbalance. Now, her goal is to help sugar cravers regain their energy, lose weight, and balance their hormones without starving themselves or spending hours in the gym. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Chloe. I'm so excited to be
2: here. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. So this type of information that we're going to talk about is so foundational to good health, and so I really feel like it's going to resonate with like so many of our listeners. So with that being said, I wanted to start off with just insulin resistance and I would say most of my listeners are familiar with the term, but just for a brief overview, like, could you explain what it is and how it develops?
2: Yeah. So I think that a lot of people, when they hear blood sugar and insulin resistance, they just immediately just glaze over, right? That's anyway how I was when I first started this stuff. I used to skip over chapters in a book about blood sugar and insulin resistance because I said... I don't have diabetes. This doesn't pertain to me. Like no one in my family has diabetes even. This doesn't matter to me, but it's something that's so so foundational. So, um I'd like to even if it's okay with you, kind of go back to blood sugar and how that affects our body and then we can talk about insulin as well. So, with blood sugar I think, uh, blood sugar is so important because it is one of the main energy sources of our body and our blood sugar affects how we feel at every moment of every day. And also has these really huge impacts on our long-term health. And that's because blood sugar affects every cell organ and physiological process in our body. So if our blood sugar, if there's something wrong with it, if it's not Really dialed in, it's going to be affecting us in really big ways because it affects every single cell organ and process in our body, right? So if our blood sugar essentially isn't working for us, it's working against us. So I never knew what it meant to have blood sugar. Like what does that even mean? Right? So essentially our body likes to have our blood sugar in this Goldilocks zone. We can call it because it doesn't like it too high. It doesn't like it too low. So there's all sorts of checks and balances in the body to make sure it gets back into that happy Goldilocks zone. And if there's something off where it keeps getting thrown out of that, that's really where we start to feel the problems happening. So essentially we don't want our blood sugar to go too high because it's going to feel bad and we don't want it to go too low. So what happens in our body, uh, our body actually only has like think about one teaspoon of sugar. That's how much sugar our body likes to have in our body at all times, about a teaspoon. So if it goes even a tiny bit higher than that or a tiny bit lower than that, the body will feel these feel symptoms, which we'll talk about in a second. So it's very, very precise. We're talking and we're not talking a lot of sugar. So you might be thinking, wow, I know people who eat a lot more than one teaspoon of sugar in a day. Like I can't imagine like the body has to take care of all of this. Right. So what happens is we have this about one teaspoon in our blood and that's our happy place. And then we eat a meal and If you live in the United States or in any developed nation, you're going to have probably a lot of carbohydrates in that meal, maybe a lot of refined carbohydrates, meaning things that have turned into flours or into like white powder. so like sugar sugar and flour, the two biggest ones. And then all that sugar gets digested and goes into our bloodstream, or the liver actually uh, releases it into our bloodstream as well. And this will increase the amount of sugar that's in our blood. So now let's say we have two teaspoons of sugar in our blood, right? Because we just ate some. So now the pancreas senses, oh, the sugar in the blood is high. I don't like that. I'm going to secrete this hormone called insulin and insulin is going to its job. One of the jobs is to take the sugar out of the blood and put it into the cells. That way it can be used for energy, right? So we can take it out. The insulin's like, knock, knock, knock. Hey, cells, I have some sugar for you. And it's like, okay, sure, come on in, right? And so that's how the body gets energy. The sugar will go into our brain, it will go into our liver, it will go into our muscles. And that's how the sugar comes out of the blood and returns back to that happy one teaspoon, right? The problems start happening. There's quite a few problems that can start happening with this process. So one of them is that. When we eat a lot of carbohydrates or we're used to eating a lot of carbohydrates, especially those refined ones, so like a potato chip instead of a potato or like a cracker instead of a whole like a bulgur wheat or something like that, what happens is that we get these huge spikes of glucose and the, the pancreas is like, oh my goodness, she's eating a ton. Like, let's give her tons of insulin. And sometimes it overshoots. So then we get a lot of insulin. And remember, insulin's taking the sugar out of the blood, putting it into the cells. If we have too much insulin, it's going to take away too much sugar. So what happens to the blood sugar? It's going to go down too low. Now we've gone under the Goldilocks zone. So what happens now? Our body is sensing... You do not have enough energy. So the, the sugar in the blood is like a signal of, hey, there's enough energy around. We're going to be good. Like we have this to use. Um, we have it stored in the muscles, but we like a little bit ready to use. So now if it goes too low, the body's like, uh, we are running out of energy. So you need to get more ASAP. So what? how are you going to feel? Your body's going to send you signals so you go get more fuel because it senses this low fuel. So it's going to send you things like cravings, especially for carbohydrates, because that's quick, easy energy to get the blood sugar back up. It's going to maybe make you dizzy, shaky, hungry, hangry, irritable, anxious. Maybe you get headaches. Maybe you have brain fog. Maybe you feel tired, heart palpitations, sweating, nausea. So when the blood sugar is low, there's so many symptoms that we get that we just really normalize in our society. It's just like, oh, I'm getting a headache. Maybe I'll, you know, I, I need another cup of coffee or I need some ibuprofen or I'm getting anxious um, or shaky. I just need to eat something. And so we're driven to eat these high sugar foods. And then what does that do? If we eat something that has high sugar again, like we go get a muffin or we go get a Starbucks, all of a sudden the blood sugar goes up really high again Uh uh-oh, we get too much insulin. Now it comes back down too low again. So what's happening is instead of the blood sugar staying gently, these gentle waves within the Goldilocks zone, it peaks too high and it crashes too low and it peaks too high and it crashes too low. And that cycle we call the blood sugar roller coaster. It almost drives itself because the higher it goes, then the lower it it will go. And the higher it'll go and the lower it'll go. And this feels terrible in your body. And like I said, it drives all those symptoms So sometimes you can even have those symptoms, not only when the blood sugar is really low, but you can have it when the blood sugar is too high. So recently I tried, um, some companies sent me this quote unquote healthy cereal. It was grain free, gluten free, um, glyphosate free. It has no refined sugars. And I'm like, Oh, let me try this. Well, I tried it. And let me tell you, gluten free does not mean spike free. My blood sugar spiked higher than I've ever seen it. And when it was at the very top of the peak, all I could think about was have another bowl of cereal, have more, you should get more. Maybe you should get ice cream. Do we have chocolate in the house? I was like, these thoughts are not my own. (laughs) It was crazy that at the peak of this, when my sugar was the highest, my body was putting these thoughts in my head to go get more sugar. It was so weird. Um, So it was a cool experience so I could see. So we can have these symptoms anywhere on this blood sugar spectrum if our sugar is outside of the Goldilocks zone. So the thing with insulin is that when we're eating frequently because our blood sugar spikes and then it drops and then we're hungry so we have to eat before our next meal and we're, we're told, hey, eat six small meals throughout the day to quote-unquote keep your metabolism going, this is driving that blood sugar roller coaster, So we're getting these hits of insulin all day long. And the insulin takes longer to come down than the blood sugar does. And so over time, we have these insulin levels that are creeping up, creeping up, creeping up. So we have high insulin levels in the blood. So sometimes that can drive us to have really low blood sugar all the time because there's just so much insulin in the system ready to put away that blood sugar that we can't keep our blood sugar up. So we're chronically hungry. We feel like our energy is crashing. We're shaky. We're anxious. We can't not be snacking all the time. Some of these people will wake up in the middle of of the night, their heart's pounding um, and, and they feel panicky. Some people need to eat in the middle of the night. This could be from too much insulin in the system. There's other causes for this too, but that's one of them. But then, a lot of times, this insulin resistance starts to happen because the cells almost become numb to the signal of insulin, right? So it's like if if I were wearing a shirt that has an itchy tag on it, after a few minutes, it stops bothering me because I became resistant to it. So the same thing's happening. If someone's screaming at you all the time, every time you do something, you're gonna stop paying attention to it, right? So our bodies become numb to the signal, and it's like, hey cells, I have some, I have some sugar for you. It's insulin. I have some sugar for you. Let me in. It's like, dude, you've already been here. We're over this. (laughs) Like, you know, so, so sometimes it just doesn't hear it. Sometimes the cells are too filled with sugar or maybe even toxins that it can't let any more sugar in. So what happens is that the amount of sugar in the blood, because the insulin can't do its job now, it can't take the sugar out of the blood we get higher and higher and higher amounts of sugar in the blood and we need more and more and more insulin to do the same job. So now either the sugar crashes too low or it can start building up and now we just have higher blood sugar and higher blood sugar all the time. So now our Goldilocks zone, it's just always resting above that. And that's where The medical industry starts to label prediabetes and diabetes is when the the sugar in the blood gets too high, but this is driven from insulin resistance. So insulin resistance, it can be caused by the overconsumption of carbohydrates, especially those refined carbohydrates eating too frequently, snacking too frequently because we're chronically raising those insulin levels. It can also come from chronic stress and things like infections and inflammation, which is driving this inflammation in the cell. And that can impact how the insulin can attach to the cell. So it can't do its job well, right? So all of these things can drive up Our blood sugar, or in some cases, drive it to not be able to stay up. And so, both of these issues are serious and can cause a lot of unwanted symptoms. So, in addition to those symptoms that we feel at the beginning where we are starting to get this blood sugar dysregulation, like for me, the way it showed up for me was that I would go to, I would wake up in the morning and I'd feel really shaky and need to eat immediately. Then if I had to ever do like fasting blood sh- blood work, I hated it because I felt so bad. I felt like my head was a balloon. I was so dizzy. I felt like I was going to pass out. I would get hangry. I'd get irritable. I would usually get really shaky after coffee. And I thought it was because of the caffeine, but it was really from a blood sugar crash. I was a person who needed to snack and graze all the time, or I just did it anyway. Like, I didn't even think about it. I'm just like, oh, let me have a little bit of this or throw some almonds or have a a few blueberries or just go carry this granola bar with me. Oh, I think I'll have a snack. Like, I didn't think about it. It was this almost self-medication where I would constantly have these little hits of sugar to keep my blood sugar up because my tendency was for it to go down too low, So the other thing I would do was that I was always that person with the granola bar in my purse. I always had snacks with me. I always was thinking about where I'd get my next meal. And even if I was going out to eat, I would still find myself in the kitchen eating before I went out to eat. I'm like, why are you doing this? I couldn't, I I would notice myself doing it and didn't know why. And I would, I realized now looking back that, heaven forbid, you know, it took a long time to get a table or the servers were slow to, yep. you know, the kitchen was backed up and I couldn't get my meal right away. It would feel so bad in my body. And that was because my hunger was not hunger. I used to say, oh, I hate feeling hungry. My hunger was a blood sugar crash. And I think that's really important to distinguish because when we have a healthy hunger, healthy hunger feels like, "Huh, oh, well, you know what? I am a little hungry. I think I could eat. But it doesn't feel like I need to go to Starbucks right now. It doesn't feel like, you know, like the people in the Snickers commercials. I don't know if you remember those, but yeah. Um, But like people turning into Joe Pesci, just turning into another person, this hangry monster. That is not hunger. If hunger feels like like you are going to die, that is a blood sugar crash because your body is saying – panic, start panicking because you have no fuel and you need to take this seriously. It can't be delayed, right? The hunger feels very urgent and filled with anxiety. And that is a sign of blood sugar issues. And I wish I knew that (laughs) years and years ago, because this is so many of us. And so um, all of this, the insulin is sort of at the root of a lot of this for us. And um, But the way in And the way to address those insulin issues that are driving the blood sugar too low or driving it too high is through looking at our blood sugar, because we can measure that so much easier than we can measure insulin. So I hope that long answer (laughs) was uh, addressed your question.
1: (laughs) No, I love that. And there are so many things I wanted to address there. And the first thing was just really internalizing for the listeners, one teaspoon of sugar, like (laughs) One teaspoon in all of our blood—that's that's where our body wants to be. I mean, yeah, just take take a a soda for example. It, it's got way more than that, and and that's you know sixteen ounces versus your whole body. So, just really thinking about that is something I think all the listeners should do. Um, and then I also wanted to go into a few of those Goldilocks zones. But before we get into that, I also wanted to comment on the insulin versus blood sugar one more time and just say that that rise in insulin versus the rise in blood sugar and the diabetes diagnosis, I think, you know, from my understanding is that rise in insulin w- might happen long before your blood sugar's ever dysregulated. So like years before you might have that rise and, and, and you may not even know you're, you're pre diabetic, but then that blood sugar starts raising later down the road and you're like, what happened? Like, so. Yeah. yeah, Chloe,
2: that's a great point because the insulin can be rising for years before we start to see a change even in the blood sugar. So you might go to your doctor and they're like, Oh, your blood sugar is in a perfect range or, um, and what's happening is that your body is so good at keeping the blood sugar in the Goldilocks zone is that it's compensating for the, the issue by sort of doubling up how much insulin you need. It's like, oh, she's eating a ton of sugar. So let's get a lot of insulin in here. So it's like really pumping out the insulin, and you have so much because your body is so used to having so many carbohydrates, or there's this inf- runaway inflammation that's happening. Um, and so that is driving the blood sugar into the normal zone, but you need, let's say, twice or three times as much insulin as a healthy person. So uh, yeah, this is a big thing. And the One of the biggest problems, there's several big problems in identifying this is that doctors don't test for fasting insulin. They do not test this at all. Sometimes even if you ask them to, they won't test it. And the information that's known about it, especially by doctors, is very limited. So typically the range for fasting insulin that a doctor would say is okay is about 2 to 20 And in my book, what I, the reference range that I use in my practice that I got a lot of this information from Dr. Ben Bickman, who is like an insulin specialist. And he typically says somewhere between two and five or below five is ideal. So if we have someone with an insulin of 8, 12, 18, these people are going to be looked at by mainstream medicine as normal when they can start really having problems, even just above that five, we can start to really see a lot of symptoms show up. And then the other issue is that the ranges that doctors use for your blood sugar it, it's very out of date. It is not reflective of the current research that is showing these these issues in blood sugar. And so if your blood sugar is under 100 here in the US, so let me tell you what that is in millimoles, if there's any... Uh, listeners outside of the us it would be 5.5 you could just divide any of the numbers i say by 18 to get the millimoles just so you know but if it's under 100 or 5.5 millimoles your doctor will be like it's great it's fine no big deal but the range that i use in my practice is about 72 to 85 as being the optimal range so we know that there's even research saying that if you're fasting blood sugars even in the high 80s to 90s sometimes you have a much increased, uh, a higher risk of developing diabetes. And so the ranges that they use are completely out of date and they miss a lot of people who are not yet pre-diabetic where that number passes a hundred. And they are also missing a lot of people who feel hypoglycemic, where their blood sugar feels too low. Sometimes you don't need to be in a really low number, like 40 or 50, for your blood sugar to feel like you're hypoglycemic, like you're shaky, dizzy, all those hangry, like you're going to pass out. Your blood sugar might be 90, and you might feel like that. Your blood sugar might be 110, and you might feel like that. So everyone's going to feel different at different numbers. Um, But We the doctors are missing that they're like, oh, your blood sugar is 110. So it can't be the blood sugar that's causing you to feel this anxiety. You just need an anxiety medication. So I see this all the time. This is really dangerous. So if this is you, if you're feeling like that, please know that your body is is sensing an energy crisis and that there's some metabolic damage happening and that this can be fixed. And the other uh, group of people that doctors miss are these people where they're like 86 to 99 in terms of their fasting blood sugar, because they're starting to have this creeping up of the blood sugar and starting to have this development of the insulin resistance. Yet the doctors are saying you're fine. And every year it's creeping up a little bit, but the problem is they don't have any tools because they don't specialize in prevention Or diet and lifestyle factors, their only tool is a prescription pad. So they can't medicate you. There's no medication they can give you when your blood sugar is a little bit low, a little bit suboptimal. So they might tell you, eat eat better and exercise, but that's very vague, right? So we can be eating tons of rice cakes and, you know, like canola oil in our fat-free dressings, and we think that's healthy because that's what society has told us is healthy, that's no one's fault. So eat better is too vague. A lot of people will get worse when trying to eat better because they don't know how to think about blood sugar when it comes to a healthy eating plan. And then their blood sugar just creeps up because there's stress and they're overeating and they're snacking and they're hungry because they're probably trying to cut calories. And so it's going to cut, they're going to probably eat these tiny meals and need to snack in between. So it just sets you up for having the high blood sugar over time. And then the other group of people that are missed are the people with reactive hypoglycemia like myself, where I went into the doctor. My blood sugar was 60. I felt like I was going to pass out, and no doctor said anything. And I got blood work four times that year, and it was 60 or 63 on every single one. No doctor said anything to me, not one. And I came in (laughs) and I had PCOS, and they should have said, Well, It seems like you have a lot of insulin in your system, which is why it's pushing your blood sugar too low, which is what could be contributing to the rise in your testosterone and and male hormones, which is driving your PCOS. I could put that together now because I had to put that together, but they didn't. They missed that. And I figured out those pieces and that's what I love to help people do is figure out that oh my goodness my blood sugar is affecting how I feel so deeply, <laughs> and it's it's causing so many issues, and um it's you know there's so much that could be done about it and there's so much that we can do, uh, so yeah I'll let you jump in sorry I tend to monologue
1: <laughs> no it's perfect and that's pretty incredible that like I I mean you know I consider biohacking to be something that I'm very interested in. And and as a biohacker myself, I recognize, you know, it's it's taking control of your health and kind of just disrupting the system. And I feel like that's kind of exactly what you did is, is you just took control of your health into your own hands. And, you know, recognizing those connections is very important. So I love that. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to get into, you started mentioning some numbers, some blood sugar numbers, Let's get into, you know, after eating those spikes, where should your blood sugar go?
2: I love that you asked this question because I did mention fasting blood sugar numbers. And I think that if we just look at that number, we're going to miss an entire, that's just like it's like, hey, I want to get to know you. Send me a, a photograph of yourself. It's like that's just one picture. Right. So we don't think about it like a picture instead of a video. Right. We want to watch the movie. We don't just want a picture of the movie. That's not going to tell us that much. It's going to tell us a tiny bit of information. So we need to look at what the blood sugar is doing after our meals, during the day, at nighttime, when we're sleeping. So the best tool to do this is getting a continuous glucose monitor, also called a CGM. So it's very common nowadays that there's a lot of companies that are helping people get access to these CGMs because currently in the US, you need a prescription for them. But there are companies that help you get the prescription without the doctor. They have their own doctors. And you can slap this little sticker thing onto your arm and scan it with your phone and it will tell you what your blood sugar is doing. And it's really, really cool and helpful to see this data. So when we're eating a meal, typically throughout the day, our blood sugar is best. How do I put this? The best, uh, the most optimal range for our blood sugar is usually around that 75-ish to approximately like 120. Again, divide these numbers by 18 if you need to. So about 75 to 120, but that's, so that's, let's call that the Goldilocks zone, right? For most people, the tighter the range, the better. So it might even be better if we keep that blood sugar a little bit lower, especially our fasted blood sugar throughout the day. So if we're just moving around, if we're talking like my blood sugar right now is probably hovering somewhere in the 80s or 90s. So during the day, um, you know, it might not be as low as that morning fasted number because I need Fuel in my system because I'm talking, I'm thinking, I'm moving, I'm cooking, I'm re- working, right? So we need a little fuel in the system, but we don't want that number to be really high. We want it to be in that lower zone, right? So definitely, I would say much more optimally below that 120 top number. Okay. So then we're going to have our, our pre- uh our pre-glucose meal, uh, number. So that would be, let's say I take my blood sugar right now and I see, let's say it's 90. Then if I eat a meal, what I'd want to do is I would want to look at my blood sugar every, about every half hour or so, um, after the meal for the next two hours to really get a good idea of what is happening after I eat. A lot of people will say, oh, just test the blood sugar after two hours, but that's not a good it, it, it's missing so much because the blood sugar could have spiked up by a hundred points or it could have been a total flat line, right? So we would have no idea of what, what is happening. So a lot of doctors want to see that your blood sugar comes back down to, to baseline after two hours, but did it go up by 10 points? Did it go up by 110 points? The difference is really, really powerful and important to know because blood sugar spikes of about 30 or more start to cause problems. They start to drive an inflammatory process. And especially if our blood sugar goes above 140, that's really going to start causing already some inflammatory damage, especially to the lining. Of our blood vessels. So, this is really important to know that if we're constantly spiking our blood sugar, we have a really high chance of having a lot of inflammation in our body, especially inflammation in the blood vessels. And what heals, what goes around the body trying to patch up and heal the blood vessels? Cholesterol. So, cholesterol often gets demonized because we're eating fat, but really it's because we're eating these processed carbohydrates that spike our blood sugar a lot. And then the cholesterol is there to try to patch up the damage. And we're blaming the cholesterol for the damage, which shouldn't be blamed for the damage. Most often it's these vegetable oils, which are bad fats, um, which are highly toxic and refined. Those can also also drive insulin resistance. And then these refined carbohydrates and blood sugar spikes can really drive that high cholesterol. So we want to make sure it's not spiking too high. A good rule of thumb is making sure it stays, it doesn't spike above 30 points at each meal. So if I were starting at 90, I would want to see it stay under 120 at the meal, right? So this is where those numbers start to come in. We also don't want to see it dip too low after the meal. So I don't want to see it start at 90, go up to even like, let's say 100, and then dip to 70 that would not feel good. That would probably feel like you'd start to get shaky, panicky, anxious, all those, those low blood sugar symptoms. So we want it. We don't want a flat line. We do not. If your blood sugar is always a flat line, that means you're dead. So we don't want that, right? We don't want to be too excessive where we need this completely, completely flat line. My blood sugar never goes above. It's okay to have these little fluctuations. That's how the body works. That's okay. Right. Um, but we don't want it to go too high. So one of the things that's important is that we don't want the blood sugar to peak too high too fast because often a really fast spike is gonna lead to a fast crash. And that feels really bad in the body. A lot of people will say, oh my goodness, I noticed that when my blood sugar is dropping really fast is when I start to feel really bad. Not necessarily when it gets too low, it's on the way down, that feels really bad. So there's ways that we can prevent the blood sugar from going up that fast, which um, we could talk about later. And then we also, like I said, don't want the blood sugar to come down too low. So if the blood sugar doesn't rise super high, it Tends to stay a little bit more stable and drop more gradually. And that's what feels good in our body. So, um, if you get your continuous glucose monitor, those are the numbers that you would want to look for. And yes, we would want to see the blood sugar come back down to baseline within two hours, maybe within an hour would maybe even be a little bit better. So, those are some things to look for on the continuous glucose monitor. And I will say that if, let's say, you have type 2 diabetes and you're, you're, you know, fasting blood sugar is like 130. And so you're obviously not going to have that same range, but you're going to want to stick with those sort of same principles. You're not going to want to spike the blood sugar that much, and you're going to want to see it come back down to baseline. So all of these principles can still be used, even if your blood sugar is sort of at a different number. And some people, as I mentioned before, they just don't feel good, especially if they're in the pre-diabetic range. Typically, they tend to... Um, not feel very good if their blood sugar drops below a certain number. So as you do the work on healing the insulin resistance and repairing the damaged metabolism, you will start to feel better at lower and lower numbers. So if right now you need to keep your blood sugar around 110 to feel good, work on not spiking it so much and then not having it drop down too low because that would make you feel panicky or or like a blood sugar crash. So try to keep it in the range that works for you. And eventually you'll be able to tolerate those lower numbers. So those are
1: my caveats. <laughs> no, that's perfect. Absolutely perfect. So we, we kind of went into some diet stuff and I want to go back to diet um, towards the end, but just kind of sandwiching this in there. Um, stress and inflammation and their impacts on blood sugar. So I, I want to stress, I feel like it is more well known. And I think most of my listeners will know that, you know, if you're stressing cortisol increases that that breakdown of glycogen in the liver and then spikes your blood sugar. So let, let's go ahead and start with inflammation. How Do you want to speak on that, how that can drive insulin resistance or blood sugar dysregulation or just lead to disease?
2: Yeah. So typically we see that Cortisol is something is our stress hormone and cortisol's job is to liberate sugar into the system. So it's going to start breaking down some stored sugar that we have in the liver, which is called glycogen. It's going to maybe take some out of the muscles or it can call in our adrenals to like pump out all these stress hormones to create new blood sugar in the case of a perceived threat, right? So if, um, you know, a giant dog comes running at me and is going to attack me, my body is going to have that panic response, that stress response. It's going to liberate all the sugar into my bloodstream so I can get up and run away and save myself. Right. Or I could fight the dog. I'm going to choose to run, but right. So the fight or flight response. So the fight or flight response is there to help us bring energy into the system so we can run away from a threat or fight a threat. So starting with the stress component If there is a stressor like, oh my God, I keep getting so many emails and this person said this to me on Instagram and my boss is blah, 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 and oh my God, taxes and the election and all this. like If there's all these problems, we're sitting at our desk, we're sitting there having these spikes of blood sugar, which you can see on a continuous glucose monitor, the stress hormones driving up the blood sugar. Um, And even exercise and being in a sauna and some of these biohacking things, sometimes it's okay, right? Sometimes it's okay to get a blood sugar spike because it's a healthy stressor if our body can adapt. But if we're just sitting at our desk, stewing, not utilizing that energy... Over time, that's going to drive up our blood sugar and insulin levels because we're going to just have so much stress in the system that it keeps liberating all this sugar for us to use, but we're not utilizing it. So um, that's one of the ways. And then inflammation. Um, there's there's a theory uh, by Dr. Brian Walsh. Brian Walsh. Um, he talks about how inflammation. If there's inflammation inside the cell right? It's almost think about it as like a giant party and everyone's over and everyone's making like a hot mess. And it's like, oh, insulin comes knocking at the door. It's like, hey, I have more guests for you. There's more glucose here. It's like, dude, no, no, no one else can come in. Like it's a, it's a chit show in here, you know, like it's a mess in here. So it doesn't want to accept new glucose into the system because it's already such a mess. So there will be this cellular resistance to the insulin because it doesn't want to allow more glucose into the cell because it can't handle the hot mess that's already in there. So that's sort of what um, Dr. Brian Walsh talks about. Um, and then there are certain um, certain byproducts of inflammation like lipopolysaccharide and interleukin-6, and these are certain uh let's say cellular components or, or um, just things in the body that are driving up the inflammation, which can be impacting the receptors on the cells themselves. So we have some of that happening as well. And so, but also the inflammation Maybe the body's also looking at it as a stressor. So if there's hidden infections and things like that. I feel like it's very tied in to that stress component where there's maybe cortisol because the body's perceiving that there's something it needs to address. Oh, there's toxins in the system. Like, oh my gosh, we have to clear this. And so it's raising the cortisol. So I feel like there's a combination of these happening in the inflammation pathways as well.
1: Perfect. Yeah. And just want to touch on that for the listeners. I feel like where you're getting at is that, like, if you think about insulin resistance developing at the cellular level, that all these molecules that are released as a result of inflammation, like that cytokine storm that happens, it, it impacts your cell membranes. And then, you know, those receptors can't, they're not responding to the insulin. And then you develop the insulin resistance and, and the high blood sugar and all of that, the perfect storm. So yeah, I, I love that explanation. Um, and then touching on just the cells, one, one little bit more is um, the seed oils. You briefly mentioned seed oils. And I think that is really important because it kind of, from my understanding, it impacts the way our kind of almost like inflammation, but it impacts the way our receptors respond to insulin at the cellular level. So do you want to talk about that just a little bit?
2: Yeah, so the seed oils—they're just highly processed. They—they um—they go through this process of refining, bleaching, deodorizing. They're heated when, and that damages them. It oxidizes them, so they're—they're they're already rancid. They're sitting in store in plastic bottles, being exposed to light. Um, there, there's just these oils are so highly oxidized and damaged um, that that is like a. A, a big stressor to the body because of all this oxidation and it again it can impact those receptors for the insulin and Im- interfere with the body's ability to utilize insulin proper properly but also they impact the body's ability to burn its own body fat because of the molecular structure, because these oils are so damaged, but then they get incorporated into our cells because what we eat becomes us. And so when we have these damaged fats that become our cells, um, we have a harder time burning our own body fat for fuel. So this often comes up as where we have a lot of body fat have trouble accessing it. So it's the high insulin, it's the vegetable oils that have incorporated themselves into our body. Um, Dr. Kate Shanahan talks a lot about that in her book, The Fat Burn Fix. And it was a really interesting concept to think about because we want to, like these man-made fats, which is what those are, the man-made fats are going to impact, they're not natural. So natural fats from the earth that are like very minimally processed, like they're not refined, those are going to be what our body can utilize really well. And being able to burn fat for fuel is a huge piece of this whole equation, and it really interferes with that.
1: Perfect. So we know a lot of people, I'm sure you see so many people come to you with blood sugar dysregulation, insulin resistance, and a lot of people are, are honestly really willing to change their diet if it means to help their health. So in my experience, I know a lot of people will change their diet. They'll go low-carb, they'll go low-sugar, they'll, low they'll even cut sugar all the way out. But what about those like trickier patients who they don't do seed oils, they're low-carb, maybe even carnivore, maybe keto, paleo, and, and and they still have blood sugar dysregulation maybe because of an infection due to the inflammation or the stress? So where do you start with those types of patients?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So I was trained at the Nutritional Therapy Association, by the Nutritional Therapy Association, and we look at a foundational approach to health. And so the foundations, the nutritional foundations, according to the NTA, are a nutrient-dense whole foods diet. So we would always want to make sure the person is getting the right amount of Nutrients from their diet that they're not refined um, and that maybe there are some potential deficiencies. We look at hydration, minerals, uh, digestion, fatty acid balance, and blood sugar. I also put the adrenals in this category and all sorts of lifestyle factors, of course. But if we look at all of those factors, we can usually find some source of hidden issues that we're dealing with. So oftentimes, And one of the biggest ones I see hands down in my practice is poor digestion. A lot of people will think, oh, my digestion's fine. I go to the bathroom every day. Or, oh, I take care of my digestion because I take a probiotic. And I thought this kind of stuff before I ever studied this. And this was the most eye-opening thing I ever learned in nutritional therapy school is that digestion is the process of breaking down food to extract the nutrients from it. like We cannot do anything with a piece of steak if we can't digest it. We could swallow it, but if we don't digest it properly, it's not an on-off switch. It's not like I put food in, it digests, it comes out the other end. It's not like that. Think about it like a dimmer switch, right? So your digestion can be Excellent. And then it could slowly be getting worse and worse and worse, 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 worse. And that's going to impact our ability to extract the nutrients from the food. So we think about when we think about digestion, there's four areas of digestion of the breaking down process that I like to talk about. So the first one is in the head. So that comes down to the brain and the teeth. So digestion starts in the brain. We need to be in a rest and digest help, hence the name of that nervous system state, right? Our parasympathetic is rest and digest. If we're in a chronic sympathetic state due to infections, due to being stressed, eating on the go, all this stuff, our body actually stops digesting. It stops producing stomach acid. It stops the bile. It stops peristalsis, moving the food through the intestines. It stops salivation. And so if we have these suboptimal levels of the the things that we need or the functions of the body to digest, we're going to have suboptimal digestion. So we need to be in a rest and digest state, and we also have to chew our food thoroughly. Our stomach doesn't have teeth; our mouth does, right? And so, chewing our food twenty to thirty times per bite is really, really important. And I still am like a B plus chewer at best, right? And I talk about this all the time, but This is something to really, really consider because think about, okay, this steak, this, I'm going to use the steak example, this piece of steak that I need to eat, I have to break it down to microscopic particles, like a particle of zinc or a tiny amino acid that you can't even see with the naked eye. So that's how pulverized this this steak needs to be. So think about, you can't just like chew it a few times and expect that your body's going to do the rest. We need to help it out by chewing. And digestion is a north to south process. So if anything gets messed up up north, it's going to affect every step below it. So then we come down to our stomach, which is organ number two. And the stomach needs to have adequate stomach acid in order to even activate this enzyme called pepsin, which starts breaking down our proteins. So if you have low stomach acid, it's very common that you have lost your taste for meat. It feels like food just sits in your stomach. Maybe you burp or feel bloated within an hour of eating. Maybe you have a thin cracking, peeling fingernails, undigested pieces of food in your stool. Maybe you have chronic constipation or chronic diarrhea. Um, There's so many considerations for low stomach acid. Oftentimes I see people have um, mental health issues. They have depression when they have low stomach acid because you can't break down the proteins to turn them into amino acids, to turn them into the backbone of neurotransmitters. So that's a big thing that I see. If we don't have enough stomach acid, it doesn't trigger the pancreas to produce the enzymes we needed to produce for further breaking down of the food. Then if we don't have that, then we don't have the bile that we need. And sometimes these low-fat diets, plant-based diets, eating a lot of seed oils can interfere or even just, I know this isn't you, but living through the 80s and 90s, this low-fat diet time. Um, my whole life I grew up, it was like a tiny bit of Pam spray on the, on the pan and a chicken cutlet and let's cut the fat off and eat special case cereal with skim milk. Like don't have any fat at all. If we're not utilizing our bile, which is like dish soap to help emulsify fats, if we're not utilizing it, it gets thick and sluggish because it gets recycled. So we develop problems with digesting fat and that's hugely important for our blood sugar. So if we can't digest and absorb our fats, how are we going to utilize these fats to stabilize our blood sugar? We won't. So that's a really, really, really big problem that I see. So a lot of people who have like chronic, like intense sugar cravings and can't get enough and they have um, hormone issues and dry skin and they have, um, nausea or they feel like they get gallbladder pains or headache above their eyes, these are all signs of poor fat digestion and poor gallbladder function, and they can really start impacting our blood sugar. So then so we have the head with the teeth, we have the stomach, the pancreas, and the gallbladder. Those are the organs and things that help to break down our food. If any of those issues are off, Then we're going to have undigested food going into the small intestine where we're supposed to be absorbing nutrients. Now, the small intestine that has all those little cilia, those tiny hair, like finger-like projections that have all the hairs to capture all those nutrients, they're getting shaved down because it's like this hunk of steak. It's got this like bacteria on it because we didn't have the disinfection from all this nice stomach acid. It's been sitting in the system. It's been, we've been working on it. We're getting gas and we're getting uh, bloating and we're getting acid reflux because it's just sitting in the system. It's working on it. We have chronic constipation because it's just this so slow in the system and all that water is getting reabsorbed and we feel bloated and just, distended and disgusting and heavy and like we're not getting the 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 energy from our food and this is causing the small intestine it, it's saying oh my god i need backup in here there is a hunk of steak i don't even know what to do with this thing i'm looking i'm out here looking for amino acids and maybe a little you know b vitamin or something like that and and it, it calls for backup it's going to call in the immune system to inflame to get rid of the problem and when we have all this this shaving down of all these hairs because of the inflammatory foods we eat or the improper digestion, then we get leaky gut because the gut lining starts opening up. And that's where the immune system comes in. It's inflaming, the inflammation travels throughout the body, and then we get all sorts of issues. So for me, my symptoms of leaky gut were allergies, asthma, sinus infections had nothing to do with my gut, right? For some people, it's you know joint pain. For some people, it's IBS. For some people, it's migraines. But it's it's starting with the poor breakdown of food. And then we don't have the breakdown of food. We don't have that absorption of the nutrients. And then this creates a really bad balance of bacteria in the gut. And so by that's where the probiotic would help, but we have to work on all these areas up North before we even get to the large intestine, which is the last step in the chain. So when we optimize this with nutritional therapy practices, This is transformational for people and you just see them start to feel so much better because you can be putting all these supplements in the system, all this expensive organic grass fed food in the system. But if you can't digest, if you can't extract the nutrients from your food, and if every time you eat, it's an inflammatory process for your body, good luck getting better, right? (laughs) So
1: that's the biggest
2: thing I see in my practice.
1: I absolutely love what you just said. I mean, that is that's pure gold because the digestive system, in my experience, is and and you broke it down too. It, it's it's the foundation of the external world with your body. It's that interaction and how your body absorbs those nutrients to either raise your blood sugar or you know sustain good health. So I absolutely love that. That was perfect. And yeah. And so, and and just for the listeners, really think about what Danielle was saying, where, you know, you can't eating, you know, a meal in a 10 minute stressful rush lunch break, that's going to impact you. That's going to create a stress response. You know, these little things we don't think about, you were saying, it starts in the brain and then the teeth and, the stomach, the pancreas, the gallbladder, all these little things have to be considered not only for blood sugar regulation, but just for optimal digestion and feeling good, not feeling sluggish after meals. So I love that. Um, Thank you. Yeah. So I could ask you so many more questions, but I know we're closing in on time. So I want to go ahead and jump to our rapid-fire questions, if that sounds good to you. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, awesome. So these are just more about you, but do you have any non-negotiables in your day? They can be anything from exercise or maybe a meditative practice or anything you have.
2: I wish my non-negotiables were meditation and exercise. I am working on that. Um, My non-negotiables – well, my new non-negotiable is – for the most part, is um, having my breakfast before my coffee in the morning because this is really important for your cortisol levels. And it if you have if you're constantly being fasting in the morning, having coffee, doing fasted workouts, you're really driving up uh, your cortisol levels, which can drive leptins, um, uh leptin resistance. So I have the breakfast before my coffee, see the sunrise, and I'm really my non-negotiable i mean just the way i eat i really focus on 95% of the time whole real foods balanced plates um and uh playing with my cats <laughs> i love it yeah and getting to bed early for the most part yeah so it's just i feel like there are some things in my day that i guess can be negotiable my number one is is gluten and seed oils i would say those yeah. are the biggest non-negotiables
1: yeah <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. And and that goes into the second rapid fire question, which is about your diet or dietary preference. So you kind of were almost alluding to do you, do you priori- prioritize like protein, fat, fiber kind of above carbs? Oh, yeah,
2: absolutely. And I, you know, the biggest one out of all of those is really focusing on getting enough protein and Usually, like animal proteins, because those are the easiest to assimilate and absorb, and what our body can utilize really well. And even if in one meal I don't get enough protein, I will be hungrier and feel snackish, like within before my next meal. And I hate that because. I really prioritize having just meals and not snacking because that's much better for your blood sugar. Of course, people with blood sugar crashes, they're not there yet, but that's the goal, right? And, you know, we weren't as cavemen and women, we were not, you know, sitting there snacking all day long. Like that's just not biologically appropriate. That's not what our digestive system is ready for. That's not what our blood sugar wants. So we want to cut these meals down. And so really prioritizing protein and especially most proteins come with fats and then some fibers, um, depending on the state of your gut (laughs) is, uh, is really important.
1: Awesome. Perfect. And the last rapid fire question is, do you have a piece of advice for our listeners to be happier and healthier and increase their wellness today?
2: I have to say, Letting go of perfectionism, because I think that perfectionism is one of the things I am such a recovering perfectionist. I'm an Enneagram one, if anyone out there knows what that means. But I have this tendency to be have this perfectionistic mindset about a lot of things. And I see it all the time in my clients and coaching students. And I see it as one of the biggest reasons why people don't succeed is because they try to be perfect and their diet or their lifestyle doesn't look exactly like so-and-so's or they miss one day and then they throw in the towel or they try to do too much at once and try to make it look perfect at once and it's too much to keep up with. So then they go back to square one and that's not helping. And so I feel like this message of getting rid of the perfection, like I post my highlights on Instagram. I'm not posting when I'm having an off day or if I'm having something. So I'm trying to get you so that. Just this morning, I posted today I had coffee before breakfast because I'm not perfect and I don't expect anyone else to be. And I want to show you that. It doesn't have to be perfect for you to do really, really well. And so when you say non-negotiables, that doesn't mean like it doesn't always mean 100% of the time rain or shine without fail, because if we have that, there's no room for life to happen, right? So we want to have these uh, kind of like non-negotiable, I would call them maybe even like strong boundaries where a boundary is there to protect you. And if a boundary is too rigid, it's like a wall and it's inflexible and it doesn't allow for, you know, like what if you want to, you know, what if you're on vacation or what if you're, you know, you have friends stop by or what if you're having a bad day? Right. So, but if your boundaries are too porous where it's like, oh yeah, I'll just give me the fries. Like, yeah, I'll have this. Oh yeah. I'm supposed to be starting tomorrow. like Then you're not doing a good job of protecting yourself. So it's like finding these, these boundaries that serve to protect ourselves and, and developing these lifestyles with these boundaries in mind, but having that ability to, oh, you know what? I missed doing my red light today, or I didn't, um, you know, I haven't gone in the sauna this week. Let me think about doing that more, more next week, or I only did two workouts this week. And I'm really wanting to do three, like finding this balance. It's going to look different every week. Um, and it's going to look different every time you eat. And we always have the opportunity to choose to do better again, the next meal. And if, if we are so stuck on, I didn't do it right. So I might as well throw in the towel. And then you compound your mistake by eating garbage the rest of the day. That is so much more detrimental because of the shame cycle that comes after that is like, I always do this. I'm a terrible person. I can't be consistent. So then there's that negative self-talk. So if we're just like, you know what, why did this happen? Why did I, why did I just have a binge or like, why did I, um, why haven't I worked out at all this week? If you're asking the question why, right? Like if, if your child or a good friend came up to you and is like, Oh my gosh, I, I, didn't work out for the last two weeks. Like you would say like, Oh, you know, why do you, why do you think that is like, how, how can I help you, you know, get more consistent with that? Maybe you think about why you want to work out to begin with. Maybe you don't have a strong enough reason or motivation. Maybe you need to reconnect with that. Maybe it's like, Oh, I had junk food every day this week. Why? are you stressed like where you did you not have enough protein like that that way you can get to the bottom of it and try to do better next time instead of turning it to this self-judgment so that's my long answer <laughs> for perfectionism i think it's there's no place for perfectionism in nutrition because a perfect diet doesn't exist and it never will and it never can and you can't eat a perfect meal so if you already i tell my my clients and followers give me A minus work. Don't aim for an A plus because it's not attainable. Even B plus, like, give me B plus work for an, for those A students out there like me. <laughs> I don't want to give it. I'll do an A minus. I'll give you an A minus, right? So we can work really hard, but we can have a little bit of flexibility because we're only human. So
1: That's a great thing to add to this episode. And I couldn't have said it better myself. Honestly, that was great. And mm-hmm. it's, it's just all about being in tune with yourself and asking yourself what you need today because it changes all the time and, and mm-hmm. having that intuition. So absolutely love that message and a perfect way to end the episode. So thank you all for listening so much. And thank you, Danielle, for coming on today. I'm sure the listeners are going to absolutely love this information. I really enjoyed talking
0: to you.
2: Yeah, thank you. Me too. It was so fun chatting and uh, we'll have to come back soon.
0: The content provided by the Synthesis of Wellness LLC via its podcast and domain is for informational purposes only and should not be used as medical advice or as a replacement for medical care. The Synthesis of Wellness podcast, synthesisofwellness.com the Synthesis of Wellness LLC and Chloe Porter disclaim responsibility from adverse effects resulting from using the content provided. Please seek and consult a licensed physician for your health and medical needs. Furthermore, Chloe Porter and the Synthesis of Wellness podcast are not responsible for the opinions of guests featured on the podcast.